1: If you've been enjoying We've Never Been Clicked, we will appreciate your five-star review on iTunes and follow on SoundCloud. Thank you. Hello and welcome to We've Never Been Clicked. This is Cuppy Cup with GoodBullHunting.com, and this is episode nine. And today I'm joined by my associate, co-founder of Good Bull Hunting, Jimmy Gardner. Jimmy, how are you today? Doing great, Cup.
2: Thanks for having me on. All
1: right, excellent. And we're very pleased to announce our guest for this episode, Christy Dosh. Christy's a sports business analyst, speaker, and author of Saturday Millionaires. How are you doing, Christy? I'm doing well. How are you? Very, very well. And the, the people listening can follow you on Twitter at Sports Biz Miss. Is that accurate?
0: That is right. I am almost always there if I'm awake.
1: (laughs) And that's uh, Biz B-I-Z. And also be sure to check out Christy's website at ChristyDosh.com. We don't get to talk too much about sports business following Texas A&M, but we do seem to be heavily involved in trademark defense. So I wanted to (laughs) start out with a, a little conversation about that. Aggies are unwavering defenders of the 12th Man Trademark. And sometimes we'll threaten legal action against fan groups, high schools, breweries, places that kind of draw public scorn. So I wanted to get your take on whether A&M is overly litigious or whether this is just necessary practice.
0: Yeah, so this is actually something I've studied pretty closely. I did a CLE for attorneys on the 12th Man Trademark. Uh, I guess that's probably been about a year ago. As a matter of fact, I think I was in College Station for Labor Day weekend last year. I came to see Kyle Field before it officially opened to the public. And while I was there, they were kind enough to let me go stand outside of the president's suite and shoot my video for my CLE with the field behind me, which was awesome. It was really nice backdrop versus people having to see me sit in my office. Uh, and I think you're right that Texas A&M tends to be in the news more often than a lot of other schools for trademark defense, but it happens at every school. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly some schools are are copied more than others, but I think that Texas A&M from a, and this is, you know, I have to say from a legal perspective, being a lawyer, I can appreciate and understand why they do what they do. And I think it's absolutely necessary because under federal law, you can actually lose your trademark if you don't police it. So they're doing what's necessary to protect that intellectual property. And, you know, I fully stand behind everything they've done with it.
1: Good. Well, that's good to know, because uh, sometimes I'll, I'll see a media story about how Texas A&M is, is suing some high school team and makes me feel bad. But but to know that it's legally necessary gives me some peace of mind, I think.
0: And if it makes you feel better, just this past week, there was a story about University of Texas forcing a Mississippi high school to get rid of their Longhorn logo that they've had since 1990. And the only reason Texas found out about it is that a Texas blogger for Burnt Orange Nation happened to be at this high school baseball game. Noticed the logo, snapped a picture of it, wrote a quick post about it. It made its way back to University of Texas and they've gotten in touch with that high school and that high school is going to have to change their name. But I think the most interesting part of that story is that that high school, their mascot, they're the Aggies. Oh, nice. We'll be
1: suing them next <laughs> they're the
0: Aggies with a Longhorn logo. So that's <laughs> definitely different. <laughs> so
1: you form a line. We'll be we'll be the next to sue this high school, I'm sure.
2: came up with that idea, you know, that'd be like down in your neck of the woods, a garnet and gold school being the gators. I mean, that's, it's nuts. So I'd, I'd love to hear the story behind that.
0: Right. Very strange. And I didn't see that anywhere. So I'm not sure how that came to be why you would be the Aggies, but have a <laughs> Longhorn logo. But uh, nonetheless, they will not have the Longhorn logo anymore.
1: <laughs> well, Burnt Orange Nation is trying to advance the downfall of society. So it's not surprising <laughs> that they're they're getting these high schools in trouble. Yeah. So, Christy, another hot topic with with sports business and college athletics right now, of course, is paying football players. We've been talking about this for at least the past three years. And if you're really heavily involved in sports business, probably much longer. And so it seems like we're moving to that stipend system. And I just want to know if you think this is enough or if we should actually pay players their market value. And maybe we think the market value is higher than it actually is.
0: Yeah, I've definitely been talking about it a lot longer than that. (laughs) I started uh, full time as a sports business analyst in 2011, but I've been writing about sports business since 2007. And during the last round of conference realignment, uh, the issue of paying players really came up quite often. And in fact, I ended up dedicating an entire chapter in my book that came out a couple of years ago to this idea of paying players and what you could and couldn't do. And again, putting on my lawyer hat, because once you've got it, it's hard not to think without (laughs) without it. um, I don't think there are a lot of legal ways to pay players beyond the stipend that they're getting. There are a lot of different issues that come up. The one you probably hear about most often is with Title IX. You would essentially have to pay all of your student athletes the same amount of money under Title IX. So if you're going to pay football players, you'd have to pay, you know, women's volleyball players and men's soccer players and all the other student-athletes. And that's what we've seen largely with the stipends is that either all student-athletes are being paid, which is the case at most Power Five, if not all Power Five institutions at this point. But even outside of the Power Five, when you get into the smaller conferences and the smaller schools, if they're paying football players, they're also paying men's and women's basketball players. So they're trying to balance out so that they stay compliant with Title IX without having to pay every single student-athlete. And it'll be interesting to see if any of them kind of run A foul of Title IX as they try to implement this. But that's kind of one hurdle. And another hurdle is that if you outright pay student athletes, there's an argument that you should no longer be a nonprofit. And it varies from school to school as to whether the athletic department holds their nonprofit status uh, within the athletic department or if they're under the umbrella of the university's nonprofit status. Uh, So there's some differing situations there. But there is an issue because one of the ways that athletic departments qualify as nonprofits is because they support amateur athletics. That's actually a um, a section of the 501c3 nonprofit code. One of the ways you can qualify is by supporting amateur athletics. And if they're being paid, there's an argument. It's not amateur athletics anymore. And if an athletic department were no longer considered a nonprofit, then donations are no longer tax deductible for donors. And so I know when I was researching my book a few years back, athletic administrators who had studied it told me there was real concern that they would lose donations. And until just the last couple of years, donations were a larger source of revenue for virtually every athletic department than TV. Now, TV is starting to catch up with the conference networks, but still donations are a really important part of athletic departments bottom line. So I think people just don't understand the kind of different layers that are here. The argument around paying players is usually about how much money is coming in the door from TV and from these other sources and that it's not fair that the student athletes don't get a cut. Um, but it's definitely a complicated situation to try to remedy in any way. I do not think we're going to see a move to paying players beyond um, that's the stipend that already exists. You know, we've moved to unlimited meals. I think some concessions have been made and they've tried to make it a better deal for student athletes. And look, by and large, I think most student athletes are getting market value. I think there are a handful of football and men's basketball players who, when you total out, you know, the value of the tuition and room and board and the the training and all the unlimited meals and the stipend and all the things that they're getting still aren't getting market value. But I think it's a handful, I don't think it's a large majority of football student athletes, and honestly. I'm someone who lays the blame more at the feet of the NFL and the NBA because, you know, some of those student athletes might choose to go pro if they were able to go pro straight out of high school. We never have this argument about baseball players because they have that ability to go pro and start making money right away. Mm -hmm. We only talk about it with football and men's basketball. And that's because of rules the NFL and the NBA have set, not because of rules the NCAA has. So, you know, for me, I think we're already in uh, a pretty good situation for most student athletes, and I don't see it changing anytime soon.
1: Wow, that was a ton of great information. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I'm I'm so under researched on that topic now. But that was uh... I have
0: a whole chapter I can send yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> can you give us a nice
1: plug for your book so that our listeners can go out and buy it?
0: Yeah, so it's called Saturday Millionaires. Um, it did come out. Gosh, I guess now it's been three seasons ago. I actually came to College Station and did one of the stops on my book tour. And funny enough. It was the most books I sold at any stop on my book tour. I am incredibly grateful to the Aggies that came out. I even went to my alma mater and didn't sell nearly as many books. So, got some great support while I was there. And the book really is still current, which is amazing because I wrote it during conference realignment and the SEC Network had just been announced. And I was certain that my book would be outdated as soon as it hit the shelves. But, you know, knock on wood. It- It's been three years and not that much has really changed. Uh, You know, obviously, we may be going through another round of conference realignment with the Big 12 here soon. So then I'll have some things that will start to be outdated. But as of right now, it's still pretty up to date. So folks want to check it out. The website for the book is uh, just www.saturdaymillionaires.com.
1: Hopefully some of our listeners can spell millionaire. But if not, maybe Google can (laughs) help them out.
0: Yeah, and if they head over to my website, if they head to my Twitter and get to my website that way, uh, there's definitely plenty of links for the book to find. Awesome,
1: and again, that's at Sports Business. So, what do you what do you think about players owning their own likeness? We talked about the schools paying players, but now we have social media services like MVP Index, Open Doors that can kind of help players monetize their social media presence. Is this something that you think should be permissible, or does this? again raise a a series of layers of problems for the schools
0: you know the only real issue i see with that or with the idea that a lot of people brought up of going to the olympic model where players can get you know sponsorships and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. outside of what they're receiving from the school is the fact that this isn't professional sports okay it's college sports which means there's boosters and boosters will manipulate the system i mean we see that now already manipulate system. So if you open the door for more of that manipulation and you open it to essentially be a free market, yeah. you don't have the protections in place that you have in pro sports. There's no draft, you know, there's no, um, you know, minimum number of years before you're a free agent. These protections we have in pro sports that are supposed to help improve competitive balance. Those don't exist in college sports, except that college sports doesn't allow this sort of open markets payment. So right. I have yet to hear a model that i think works in terms of hitting all the legal marks but also allowing there to be some level of competitive balance and every time i talk about this people tell me there's already no competitive balance and you know certainly the system is not perfect but it's going to get a whole lot worse
1: if you open the door to boosters like sure. that sure so if we can come up with a model that works we can we can
2: draw a lot of money as consultants maybe
0: exactly i'm telling you if i had come up with it i would have already sold it to somebody <laughs>
2: yeah, I appreciate you laying out just how complicated this is. I mean, we, the three of us, we all are on Twitter all the time. And it's hilarious to me how people try to shove a very complex issue such as this into 140 characters and just speak in absolutes. And yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's so nuanced. And uh, uh, so thanks for laying that out. I think that's, uh, I mean, you're, you know, this better than anybody. And uh, I think it'll be really informative for uh, our listeners.
0: It's definitely one of those things where I could do like a whole podcast just on that one issue. So I was trying to like distill it down as far as I could, where it still made sense. That's (sighs) when we get
1: into episode 20 something, we'll keep that in mind and and do the whole podcast (laughs) around that.
0: Hey, I'm always happy to come back. (laughs) That's
1: awesome. So, um, you know, as you know, as Texas Aggies, we don't care about the big 12 anymore, um, or, or any teams (laughs) in the big 12, but it seems like obviously the wheels are turning for conference realignment to, to kick back up again. Just this morning, there was some pushback released from the networks on expanding the Big 12 with teams outside the, the Power Five. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get your take on Big 12 expansion. Do you think it's going to happen? Will it be two teams or four teams and and maybe which teams you think might might be in the mix?
0: You know, I I definitely moved to thinking it was going to happen uh, a couple of weeks ago when after the ACC announcement was made about them getting a network, the Big 12 immediately the next day announced that it was reopening the idea of expansion. I thought it was dead. I thought it should be dead. I do not think there's a single school they can add uh, that makes sense from a long-term perspective. Uh, I do think there's some short-term gain, particularly because of the clause that ESPN and Fox allow in the contracts that allows for that pro rata share uh, of television revenue for any new members that come in. I know Clay Travis wrote a piece a few weeks ago about how the big 12 could really capitalize on it by having new members essentially bid to come in at lower amounts. So saying, instead of taking the 20 million, we'd be guaranteed under the contract. We only need 5 million of that a year. And then maybe another school's like, well, if you get us, well, you know, we'll only ask for 3 million oh. a year. And so then essentially... You have money left over for the other schools to divide. You know, at the very least, they're certainly going to bring new members in as partial members and not allow them to have a full share for at least a few years. So, short term, they can definitely boost the revenue of the other, of the current members of the conference. But that is such a short term strategy. Mm-hmm. It is not a long term strategy. And from the minute they started talking about this, I was thinking, you know, ESP in a box are not going to see the value in adding any. Of these teams that we're talking about. And look, they're great schools. I've been to a lot of the schools that are being mentioned. I know people who work there, you know, I, I'm not trying to disparage them, but from like a dollars and cents perspective, none of them add enough money to the big 12 for it to make sense to add them as a member, except for this clause in the television contract. So sort of the original conversation around it was, Hey, you know, the big 12 does this. And then ESPN and box may not want to deal with them or may. May not offer them as much money when the contracts come up again in the mid 2020s. So this is a short term grab because they may be, you know. Cutting off their nose to spite their face for long term. Well, then today, Sports Business Journal had a piece out about how Fox and ESPN might actually fight it. So maybe they decide to contest the contract. You know, maybe they make some sort of separate deal with the Big 12 to stop this. I mean, it sounds like there's definitely pushback coming from ESPN and Fox. That doesn't surprise me at all. If I was ESPN or Fox, I would be pushing back. So I think the brakes have been slammed on a little bit. And I don't think we can say with 100% certainty at this point that they're going to add members, but it certainly seems to be trending in that direction. It's just going to be a matter of what they are, how far they're willing to push the envelope, so to speak, with ESPN and Fox.
1: Yeah, I just I like to imagine a bunch of suits and athletic departments around the country reading outkick the coverage, trying to get, you know, (laughs) trying to make up their mind about the next move that they should make while they're they're paying millions of dollars to these consultants.
0: Hey, here's the thing, you know, say what you will about Clay Travis. And I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, uh, but I met a TV consultant years ago who I won't name because it was an off the record conversation. And he told me, he said, you know, all that stuff Clay throws out there about TV deals. He's usually right on. And this consult with somebody I trust. Sure. And if he says Clay is on the right track when he talks about TV deals, you know, I'm inclined to believe him. And so when Clay talks about those kind of issues, I certainly read his work and check it out. And I know there's a lot of people on call co- around college athletics who do the same thing. Sure.
1: Yeah. I think it's the other stuff that, <laughs> that people jump on him for. Yeah. But- <laughs> That's kind of a modern yeah, phenomenon. I,
0: I will limit my comments to this one. Thing. Although Clay has been fabulous to yeah. me over the course of my career. We share the, uh, the former, former attorney uh, thing in common. And he has been nice enough to let me write for Outkick over the years about legal issues. So we have a great relationship. But he really does know his stuff when he talks about the TV deals. So if you see him writing about that, you want to pay attention.
1: And of course, all the other attorneys are uh, blogging for SB Nation, aspiring to be <laughs> you and Clay Travis. <laughs>
0: If I had, you know, a dollar for every attorney who emailed me and asked me how to get out of practicing law and work in sports instead, I could go ahead and quit because I get a lot of those emails (laughs) in the beginning. The whole reason I got to know Clay is because I sent Clay one of those emails when I was still an attorney. So, you know, it works.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. One of our authors, we we sent out an email kind of soliciting topics and questions. And one of them who is an attorney wrote back and asked how to get out of being an attorney and move into the sports. (laughs) business. Oh, that's funny. Hey, I
0: just started blogging. It was that simple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell them to write some articles for once. The, yeah. <laughs> um, so we've talked or you've mentioned TV revenue quite a bit, and it seems to be kind of piling up to ungodly sums right now for college football. And mm-hmm. a, a big part of this might be that, you know, live sporting events are growing in value for advertisers because it's really easy for consumers to zip through commercials on other types of programming. So are, are we just at the beginning of this or are we starting to see TV revenue peaking?
0: You know, for me it was the big 10 deal that was going to tell me which direction uh, that the industry was going. in as a matter of fact, back in the spring before the Big Ten deal was done this summer, I spoke on a panel at the University of Virginia Law School. And on the panel with me was a, a guy from Major League Baseball who's over their TV deals and a guy from the NBA who's over their TV deals. And so, look, they know more than I do. They're dealing in this every single day. And they both said the same thing. They said, even though they're in pro sports, they were watching the Big Ten deal to see what was going to happen. You know, what kind of players were going to come in? Were you going to see, you know, a Twitter, a Google and Amazon, you uh, you know, any of those sort of platforms going after the rights was ESPN going to pay up, you know, had Fox developed this great relationship with the big 10 because of big 10 network whereby they were going to get the bulk of the rights, you know, were we still going to see big jumps in revenue? And we did, Mm -hmm. we saw a huge jump. I bet if I had asked those guys how much they thought the big 10 deal might go up, they would have never imagined. Uh, that it went up as much as it did. I mean, the new deals with Fox and ESPN and then CBS has a very small basketball package tripled the big 10 television revenue tripled. Um, I would have never imagined it would be that much. And I think that that tells us live sports are still incredibly important to these networks and they're still willing to pay money for it. And what we saw was that Fox came in immediately. Um, no big surprise because they do have that relationship with the Big Ten because they own Big Ten network with the conference. And ESPN really lowballed their initial offer and they, you know, they got some negative press around it that they lowballed for the first half of the package. I think they did it intentionally to see how much Fox was willing to put on the line for the first half of that package, okay. because then they came in just slightly behind Fox to grab the second half of the package and, and CBS stuck with the basketball rights that they had. So really Fox got a couple of advantages. Um, They will get the conference football championship game and they'll have first choice at uh, the football games that they want to air. It's going to be kind of weird. Fox will get to go first and choose a game and and then ESPN will go next and it'll go back and forth. But essentially Fox gets first choice. And then also having the football championship game will be huge for them. But it tells us that there's still value in those rights and that the networks still have money and they want to spend it on sports and particularly college sports on a big property like the Big Ten. So while I do think it's still evolving and you know, not too long ago, I think it's just been a few weeks ago, the PAC 12 announced a new relationship with Twitter where they're going to have some of their Olympic sports live streaming on Twitter. I certainly think we're going to see more of those things come into play. Mm-hmm. And that when the current rights deals come up in the 2020s for, um, all of these different conferences that you could see, uh, a Twitter and Netflix and Amazon and Google be a player in the marketplace those networks are still trying to hold on to these rights to make the cable model work it's not dead yet right
1: yeah i hope twitter's still around when uh, when that happens well, i do
0: t- <laughs> i i've been on twitter for a very long time and i always joke and tell people if i write a memoir. My subtitle is going to have to say something about how Twitter changed my life because <laughs> I ultimately met my husband on Twitter. I met my agent on Twitter. I get probably 90% of my speaking gigs on Twitter. I mean, Twitter is a big part of my yeah. life, so I need to stick around.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And I've, I've followed you on, on Twitter for, for quite a long time. Yeah. And I, I noticed that it seems like you're kind of a mentor to people who want to get into this, the sports business. They aren't sure quite how to go about it. Um, which is which is really nice. The pitfall that many of us uh, kind of fall into is we end up getting blocked by Darren Rovell um, <laughs> because we're mean to everybody uh, and, and then we then we give up.
2: I, by I most of us, mean
0: you mean you. So, you know, you can be a nice guy and make it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I was yeah. blocked by uh, Darren and Joe Shedd uh, pretty early oh, no. on in my, and I'm nicer now. Well, maybe that's debatable, but uh, I try to be nicer now to the to the media. Um,
0: I haven't felt the need to block you yet. I'll let you know if you get out of line. Okay. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, please do. It's uh, I, I'm sure all of that happened during the Johnny Manziel fiasco of, of 2013. Um,
0: yes, I can see how that would happen. Yeah,
1: because we were we were ardent <laughs> defenders. Maybe uh, maybe we were on the wrong side of history there. But well, uh, just
0: blame it on Johnny. Everybody else blames everything else on him. Just <laughs> <that>.
1: <laughs> I think one of our writers hand wrote a letter to Darren Rovell asking him to unblock him. And and Darren oh. actually did unblock him, and then I think he got blocked again.
0: Um, How <laughs> funny! So he, he got
1: his second chance and, and blew it.
0: Knock on wood. Darren has never blocked me. We we maintain a nice relationship. <laughs> That's good. I try yeah. to stay on his good side. And
1: uh, I mean, you may be friends with Darren, but I, I kind of consider you the anti-Darren Rovell. And I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> you kind of uh, bring a human side to the sports business where it feels a little more mechanical. Um, when I'm reading the things that, that Darren puts out there
0: it's so funny to be you know in this little niche of the industry there aren't that many people who identify themselves as sports business reporters or analysts you know there's people who are beat reporters or who are national reporters who report on the business side sometimes and some of them do a wonderful job of it but there aren't that many of us who identify ourselves as a sports business reporter or a sports business analyst and so you know I followed Darren for a long time before I ever had kind of my big break and got to ESPN and then I'd been at ESPN for a year and they brought Darren back and So we were there together for a year and people always ask me what our relationship was like and how competitive we were with each other. And look, I'm a really competitive person um, and he probably is too. But the funny thing is we're interested in completely different things. You know, I'm sort of obsessed with college sports business. He rarely, you know, writes about it. We had to run our ideas past each other when we would want to write about things. And there was only one time in the year I was there that we both wanted to write about the same thing. And I honestly don't remember what it was, Uh, but it generally wasn't a problem because we're Just interested in different sides of the business. And as far as I'm concerned, there's room for both of us. And certainly our writing's different, our style's different, the way we communicate with people on Twitter is different. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's not enough people who understand the business side and who report on it. So I, I'm all for other people coming into the space. And look, like, it's not my full time job anymore. So I'm probably not as competitive as I used to be about making sure I have like my foothold in the market. At the end of the day, I love the business of college sports. I know that I know the business side and that I've done my research and I've developed the relationships and I just love being around it at this point And I love talking
1: about it. Awesome. Yeah, I think with Darren, as long as you stay away from concession stand pricing, you're, yes. you're pretty much out of his lane.
0: Yeah. And that, that, that's never been my thing. So I, I don't do a lot on the concession side, except, <laughs> and I know you, you mentioned this when we were discussing all the, the different things we talk about. The one concession thing I've tried to keep an eye on over the years is alcohol sales at college games, just because I'm sort of fascinated by that subject. But outside of that, I really stay out of the concessions. <laughs> well,
1: let's talk about alcohol sales at college games, uh, at, at Cowfield. field, uh, I think if you're a rich donor, you can buy alcohol in the suites. But but for the for the people. In That's the,
0: pretty much how it works. Yes. Yeah, the whole
1: SEC, <laughs> yeah, yeah. other than LSU, maybe. Right. Is is kind of like that. So do you think alcohol should be widely served in college football stadiums?
0: I actually don't have a problem with it. When I first started touring around and going to different schools, that would have been fall of 2011. I think I've been to something like three dozen different schools Um, in the last five years, I went to Louisville. um, And that was the first school I had ever been to that allowed fans to, first of all, leave during halftime to go out to their tailgate and drink and eat more, but also that had general sales throughout the stadium. And my husband and I, who was only my boyfriend at the time, I remember discussing, like, we were going to watch and see, like, were fans rowdier? Like, could you tell a difference that you were in a stadium where general alcohol sales were allowed? Couldn't tell one difference. I mean, there was nothing I noticed that stood out to me. And I haven't really heard schools reporting problems with it. You know, we We've seen a lot of schools at it in the last few years. I think we're up to 40 something schools now that allow alcohol sales at some level. Mm-hmm. And I haven't really heard any problems. And in fact, some schools have said it's cut down on the alcohol issues they have because people aren't trying to binge drink before they come into the stadium. So I have no problem with it whatsoever. I know some of the issues that are brought up is that maybe it encourages uh, students to drink more and that we should be teaching them that you don't have to drink alcohol to have a good time. You know, and I understand that perspective. It's not the perspective I have, but I understand that perspective. And certainly, I mean, I'm I'm a medium- remember I go to games all the time and don't drink because I'm in the press box Mm -hmm. working. So I'm not, you know, I can have a good time and be there and not be drinking. Um, But I do think that not allowing it does cause people to binge drink out in the parking lot before they come in. You know, I think that it has its own problems. People figure out how to bring airplane bottles in and whatever, and you see them all over the stands in the student section when you leave. So I don't have a real problem with it. It's another way that schools can make a little bit of revenue, although honestly it's not that much. And I think more than anything, it enhances the experience. Um, so it, I think most schools that add it don't add it because it's a big revenue booster. They add it because it adds to that experience. And we've seen attendance fall all over college football and all across sports in general, because people can stay home and have a more comfortable experience. So it's just one more thing to offer them uh, that allows them to have a nice experience at the
2: game.
1: Yeah, I was I was thrown out of Bluebell Park once. So I feel like any opinion <laughs> I have on this is invalidated by that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. I think if you're selling, you know, seven or $8 beers at the stadium, it's not going to appreciably change the experience uh, for fans and maybe it will limit binge drinking in the parking lot.
2: Hey, Christy, we've been talking about a lot of different things shifting on the, uh, the landscape of college sports. And um, you know, the future is, I think it's exciting for everyone, but there's a lot of balls kind of up in the air, uh, pardon the pun, but who are the visionaries that you look to at the university level or at the conference level that you admire, you know, the, the people who are thinking 5, 10, 25 years down the road who kind of steer the ship of where college sports is going in terms of a business perspective?
0: That's a really good question. So a few people jumped to my mind right off the bat. Uh, Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner comes to mind. Now I'm a little biased because he worked at the WTA, um, the women's tennis tour, when I was a legal intern there during my last year of law school. And although I didn't really deal with him directly on a daily basis, I saw some of the things he accomplished there and then have paid attention to what he's done since he got to the Pac-12. I'm not totally on board with the decision he made about How to structure PAC 12 networks, and we haven't seen it have this sort of success. SEC network and Big Ten network have had. So I'm certainly not saying every idea he has is perfect, but I do think that he's someone who's very forward thinking. Uh, I think that especially when it comes to television and visibility, that he is a leader in that space. You know, he's tried to figure out how do they get into China, um, which I find super interesting because my boss, when I was at the WTA tour, who was the general counsel, is now the head of NBA China. So I would imagine that they have some relationship with each other still and continue to talk. And then the Pac-12 deal that I mentioned earlier with Twitter, where they're going to be streaming some of their Olympic sports on Twitter. You know, I think these are signs that um, that Larry Scott is forward thinking and is trying to plan for the future. He's innovative, he's willing to take risks. And I don't see that with all of the commissioners and I won't call people out by name, but I, I do think that he's got some good qualities in that sense and was a good choice for that conference. Um, athletic directors that I really pay attention to closely. Um, Ross Bjork at Ole Miss. I met him when he was still at Western Kentucky and then have sort of followed his career as he moved to Ole Miss. He's somebody who impressed me from the very first time I met him. I remember my husband and I visited Western Kentucky, actually on our way to Louisville. That first game we went to at Louisville, we were driving there and I tweeted that we were driving there and I asked if there was anywhere good to eat on the way. And Ross, who was the AD at Western Kentucky at the time, Followed me on Twitter and he reached out to me on Twitter and said, Hey, you've got to drive through Bowling Green to get to Louisville. Stop and see Western Kentucky. And I remember my husband and I being like, Western Kentucky? Like, do we want to go visit Western Kentucky? Like, what? What's there, you know. I mean, we just knew nothing about Western Kentucky, and it wasn't on sort of our like wish list of schools to go to. No offense to Western Kentucky, um, but we decided to go. You know, the athletic director reaches out to you on Twitter, and you got some extra time. Why the heck not? We really were driving right by, and Ross personally sat down with us in his office for the better part of an hour, and then. And showed us around campus, showed us all the athletic facilities, talked about his plans for the future. And when we got back in the car, I remember us talking about how dynamic he was and how he was going places. He was very young at the time. I think he was the youngest athletic director at the FBS level. And we both sort of said to each other, you know, this is a guy we got to watch because he's going to be somewhere big and in less than two years after that he got the job offer at Ole Miss and moved on to Ole Miss and I just feel like he's young, he's a risk taker, he's energetic, he's passionate. Um, Sometimes he gets a little carried away on Twitter if you follow him on Twitter. Sometimes he like gets in some little tiffs with fans. I remember there was a fan last year he said he would like meet him out back. You know, (laughs) he can get a little (laughs) fired up about things Um, but I think that he's an incredible leader and that he's really somebody to watch, especially because he is still so young and I think has a lot of moves left to make. Not moves in terms of moving schools, but a lot of moves in terms of like innovative things. I think he'll do throughout his career. So he's somebody I really watch closely. Um, And beyond that... I'm trying to think who else I really admire. Oh, you know, the other one that comes to mind that I go back to over and over is Gary Stoken, who is the CEO of the Chick-fil-A Bowl in Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta, and so I probably know that bowl game better than I do any other. I've lived out of Georgia for four years now, but i spent years going to the Peach Bowl and the Chick-fil-A Bowl once it was renamed, and then now going to the kickoff games that they put on every year. I go almost every year to one or more of the kickoff games, and they really brought back the season opening kickoff game. I wrote a piece, I think last year or the year before, about how they've ushered in sort of this new golden era of the kickoff game. You know, that was really them. And they do a phenomenal job with the Chick-fil-A game in the years that it's not, you know, going to be a semifinal for the college football playoff. It matches an SEC and an ACC team. And they sell out before they even announce who the teams are because people know that they put on a quality... Um, you know, game there and that it's going to be a good matchup. So when I talk to him about the business side of college football, he understands it as well or better than anyone else I've ever talked to in the industry. So he's somebody I always want to talk to when something new is happening or I want to understand something. Incredibly intelligent guy when it comes to college football.
1: That's awesome. That, awesome. that explains why Good Bull Hunting was credentialed for the Chick-fil-A Bowl with this forward thinking
2: Yes. Exactly.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, this has certainly been tremendously illuminating. I'm actually sitting here kind of embarrassed at how, how much my knowledge lacks now in sports business. So I, yeah. I think I need to buy Saturday Millionaires and, and start brushing up on this stuff or maybe go to law school. Yep. But
0: Saturday dot com.
1: <laughs> that's right. And follow sports business. <laughs> so maybe as a final question, Christy, and it'll depend on if you're familiar with this. Have you heard anything about the chalk talk controversy that we're having at Texas A&M right now?
0: I have not. That is new to
1: me. Oh, So we uh, we have a women's clinic that we we put on annually. Oh, and I did. You. Yeah, I just
0: didn't know what it was called. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about now. As soon as you said women. Right. So there were <laughs> some
1: know. tasteless PowerPoint slides shown at the clinic. And I kind of you know, we we sit here and argue about this as males writing for a blog. So I wanted to get your perspective on. Whether the concept of the women's clinic is kind of dated itself or whether maybe we're just seeing a lot of variance in the quality of these programs.
0: I don't think the concept is necessarily dated. Um, I have certainly been to women's events and clinics, not just around college football, but around sports in general, that I felt like even if I were an average fan, let's say I didn't have the knowledge base I have as a sports business analyst. Even if I was an average fan, I would find insulting because played sports my whole life. I, you know, I, sports have been a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I've also been to ones that are incredible. So I live in Jacksonville, Florida, just outside of Jacksonville, Florida now. And the Jacksonville Jaguars say what you will about their performance on the field. They do a really nice job with um, their women's group. So they actually have a women's group that meets multiple times during the year. And I went to the kickoff event they had. I can't remember if it was the beginning of last season or the beginning of the previous season. And I thought they did a really nice job. Nothing felt like they were dumbing down football right. for women. It felt more like they were focusing on things that women would care about. And so um, the most interesting thing I thought they had was they brought four of their rookies in and had them kind of sit up front and do a QA and a with the women. And they really let the women drive drive the conversation. So instead of having somebody get up and speak and potentially say ignorant or hurtful or condescending things, they let the women drive the conversation by bringing in the rookies and then letting the women ask them questions. And it was fantastic. And then you really got to know those players and you wanted to root for them all year because it was this very intimate setting where you really feel like, felt like you got to know them as people. And I do think that that's maybe something women have more interest in than in, in men is the sort of um, personal stories, the um, behind the scenes, you know, not just what they're doing on the field, but the kind of people they are and um, how they were raised and the things they're interested in doing in the community and that kind of stuff. And so I liked that they brought them in and we could relate to them as people. But again, I also thought that was a great way to do it because the women who were there drove them the conversation right. instead of being talked to or talked at, mm-hmm. it was much more engaging. So I, I think you can put on positive events, but uh, certainly the one at Texas AM recently was not a good example. Yeah,
1: I think it, it <laughs> sounds like we need to bring in some people from Jacksonville to kind of show us how to get the misogyny out of the event if we're going to continue to have it.
0: Yeah. And maybe involving women who are on the athletic staff in the planning and the execution of the event. I know there are women who work in that athletic department Mm -hmm. and hopefully they are being looped in to uh, help the planning for
1: the future. Yep, Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your perspective on that. And just in general, I'm going to humbly say that this was a fantastic interview. So um, we appreciate your time so much and uh, we'll work to get this posted very quickly because you you gave us so much great information that I want to share it uh, with our listeners as quickly as possible.
0: Oh, thank you. I so appreciate you having me. And really, I'm happy to come back anytime. So if you see something and you think I could help you talk about it, I would be happy to come back.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Jimmy, for joining me. Sure. Thank you, Cup. And thank you, Christy. That was really fantastic.
2: Oh, thanks, Jimmy.
1: One final plug. So follow Christy on Twitter at sportsbizmiss and visit her website, christydosh.com. K-R-I-S-T-I-D-O-S-H dot com. Thank you.